Hello and welcome to the Renovation Church Podcast, where our vision is to help people know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and change the world. My name is Mason Smith, and I'm the creative director here at Renovation Church. We are so thankful that you're joining this podcast today. We hope that today's message inspires you and draws you closer in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, enjoy the message. Christmas and um, glad you're here this morning. I want to begin this morning by getting right um, into our text. Um, we're going to be looking at a Christmas series, so one of the texts that we're going to be using is uh, from Luke and uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 um, to 38. So if you have your Bibles, or the verses will be on the screen as well. It says this, now in the sixth month, an angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth city of Galilee named Nazareth, excuse me, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who is called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. One of the greatest stories um, in the Bible ever told. And so um, here we are um, this morning. We're so glad that you're here. As you can tell, um, Pastor Kyle's not preaching. I don't know if you can tell the difference. I mean, we're both bald, bespectacled, beautiful. But um, he's here this morning, but he had surgery this week and experiencing some rough, rough days. And so we want to keep him in, in our prayers as he recovers and, and heals from that surgery. So this is already the 5th of December. Year, and this fall has flown by. And that means there's only 20 days till Christmas, right? Um, my prayer for you in this season, I pray that it goes beyond what we traditionally do and expect and get from Christmas. That the incarnation of Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, uh, would come and be born in you, in your heart, in a new and meaningful and lasting way. So today we're beginning our Christmas series, A Fearful World Rejoices. This is based on the three times in the, in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, those are the only two uh, Gospels that record the Christmas story, where the angel tells certain characters in the story not to be afraid. Joseph in Matthew 1, the shepherds in Luke 2, and of course, today we're going to look at Mary in Luke chapter 1. So fear, 
was even an issue for people in the Bible. Maybe you didn't think that that was ever a problem uh, because we tend to romanticize and hold up figures in the Bible and Old Testament, New Testament, that they were always faithful and always said and did the right things and, and never fear. But actually, not just in the Christmas story, but throughout all of Scripture, People were told not to fear, even if, it wasn't just um, women that were widows and, and were s- struggling to find a meal for the day or, or children that were, didn't have parents. It was for even those that were strong and leaders like Moses and Joshua, David and the apostle Paul were told not to fear as well. So it goes across the board. So if you're a believer here today or any person, you're struggling in this area of fear, which we all do then you're not alone. You're actually in good company. Or maybe, should I say, bad company. Because if a lot of people are fearing, that's not going to bring about the results that God wants for us. So it was uh, Vince Lombardi, the legendary coach of the Green Bay Packers, who once said, fear makes cowards of us all. It's true we are in a world that is relentless, in the relentless grip of fear, that paralyzes and terrorizes us from every angle. In fact, we came in this morning experiencing some of that in our lives. If you were to Google the word fear, you would um, get a list of all kinds of fears, and there seems to be a fear for everything that's possible out there. In my five decades uh, plus in life, in the last, those years, I have seen our country, at least on two occasions, where fear has really gotten a grip of us because we've been a pretty, I mean, we've had issues in the, 19, in the 20th century and, and other times in our history, but the last few years have been something else. Um, the one that, that I remember very well, of course, and some of you will as well, is September 11th, 2001, where fear gripped our country, where 19 men full of hate and murder attacked uh, several cities of our country through airplanes and brought down 3,000 plus people. In our world, I remember going outside after that and hearing planes or helicopters over my head, thinking, "Is something going to happen?" There, that fear just continuing to loom over me and and many others. I also remember that the church was um, full and packed for about a month at that time because people were wondering what's going on, what's going to happen to us, and that fear that that gets a grip in our in our hearts. The other, of course, is just in recent years, in 2020, and and even this year with COVID and all the things that are going on with that, and we're still experiencing that, that we're still dealing with those fears. So we not only have a global and even national realm of fears that we deal with, we also have our personal phobias and anxieties. Some of us are right now in, in immediate anxieties. Maybe it's unemployment. Uh, I work with and I help with the the Connect group on Monday nights, and some of them are fearful of their future and and finding a wife or a husband. It's real. It's it's a real fear. And others have many other things that they're going through as well. Where does this fear come from? Why does it happen? Has has there ever been a time where we we didn't fear? I can tell you uh, a a few of mine. I'm not exempt from this by no means. one of my biggest fears, and I know some, some of you love, how many of you love flying in planes? They're just a rate, yeah, what, what's wrong with you people? I, I, I don't understand that at all, but you do, and, and I'm, I'm really happy for you, I think. Um, I hate flying, that's just my, I, I do not like it all, at all. I'm on pins and needles, and um, a few years ago, we went to Cambodia, my wife Anna and my daughter Emily and I went to Cambodia and to work with Rafa House, uh, a ministry there in Cambodia, and I knew that the plane ride there was gonna be long. 
and really, really long, about 12 to 13 hours. And I have never been on a plane that long in my life. And I'm telling you, I think my wife would attest to this, that there was turbulence the whole way there. And I was white knuckling it and I was not, I did not keep my cool. I kind of gave in to that fear. And there's been others in my life. Um, I, I'm wearing a long sleeve shirt today, but maybe you've noticed if I wear a short sleeve shirt, I have these bumps on my arms and the back of my arms. And you're probably thinking, what's wrong with this guy? He's got bumps on his arms. Uh, many years ago, somebody said, you need to check those out. Make sure you're, you're healthy and you're okay. So I went, I didn't go for a while because I was fearful of what I, the answer I might get from the doctor. But I had him checked out and the doctor said that, uh, it's, a, it's called lipoma, not lymphoma, which is cancer, but lipoma. And he said, it's, we don't even know why they exist, why they happen. But I feared that in my life. I feared for my health, as many of us do at times in our lives. And I could tell you other stories as you could about the fears that you face in your life as well. I want to talk to you about fear this morning um, from the book that really encourages us not to. But it tells us where it comes from. The origin of fear from Genesis 3, way back in the beginning in the garden is where it all started. It says this. This is Adam talking to God. So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid. He heard God's voice in the garden because Adam and Eve just took of the tree, and they ate the forbidden fruit, and they, they ran in fear. They were afraid of God, the consequences. So fear happens when we take the word of the devil or the culture or even myself over the word of God, and we trust in it. And it leads to the residual effects of fear, shame, and guilt. We find all three of those in in verse 10. Here's the good news. Fear doesn't come from God. Whatever fear and anxiety and worry that you're experiencing today and in your life, know this, it doesn't come from God. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and a sound mind. Does that encourage you this morning? that he's given that to you, you don't have fear from God. He, uh, Paul says this in Romans, I love this. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. I think a lot of us are in captivity and bondage and we have those chains that we deal with every day. But that's not a believer. You receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, or the translation there is Papa or Daddy, Father. I heard a statement recently that said, the greatness of God is not in his isolation. We do not have a God that's far from us and stays far from us like the pagan religious gods of of all the other religions who are actually feared. Actually, the greatness of God is his intimacy with us, that he came and spent time with us. And because of that, we can call him our Abba, our daddy, our father. We can have a relationship with the God of the universe. That definitely can drive out our fear. Fear can be overcome in the security of God. I love Psalm 46. It says, God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in a time of trouble. Therefore, listen, we will not fear. Though the earth be removed and the mountains be carried in the midst of the sea. Do you think that would kind of be a big deal if the earth would just vanish? Yeah, that would kind of be a big deal. Or a mountain, some of the Rocky Mountains would be placed in the, in the ocean. Mountains that are stationary and stable and, and firm. The psalmist says here, even if that happens, the most geological upsetting thing that happened in the world, we're not going to fear. Fear must be cast out, 1 Peter 5, 7. I think Peter was paying attention in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 about Jesus' teaching about not to worry. 
Because here's what Peter says, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. The idea, the teaching of that verse is this idea that you put all your weight on God, on Christ, because he is your personal, you are his personal concern. You put all your weight on him and everything about your life that you care about, that you're anxious, that you're fearful about, you put that all on Christ and because you are his personal concern. He's the one that's going to take care of you. Care can also be uh, fear, anxiety, and worry in Scripture. They're independent, but they're also interchangeable. The idea here is of a student, a schoolboy, coming home on Friday afternoon after a full week of school, and he has his backpack, and when he gets in the house, he he doesn't lay it down by a chair or in his bedroom. He takes his backpack, and he just deposits it. Hey, There we go. And his mom's saying, hey, don't you want to look at your homework? No, I don't want to look at my homework. I want to cast, I want to get rid of that. That's the idea of casting fear away. Not something that we tolerate or we allow to be around us, but we cast it away. Why? Because God cares for you. You don't have to be anxious. You don't have to live in that anymore. God's word also counters fear. 365 times in the Bible, we find the phrase, do not be afraid, or be, fear not. Why? Because the Bible anticipates the human struggle, the propensity for us to fear every day. I think God gave us a verse every day that we get up in the morning to be reminded you don't have to live in fear today. Whatever you're going to face, family, crisis, job, financial, health, whatever it is, you don't have to be afraid And that's a reminder for us. My wife was reminding uh, that of me before I got up here. Kent, practice what you preached this morning. Let it be real in your own life. 1 John 5 says that faith is the victory that overcomes the world, not fear. Faith is the victory. And of course, we go to the fear of all fears. The underlying, most dominating thing we worry and are anxious about is the fear of death or dying. Listen to what the psalmist said. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I know these are familiar words. I will fear no evil. Why? You are with me. Do you know that Christianity is the only faith, the only religion is when we understand when a person dies in Christ that we will be escorted personally by an angel into the presence of the Lord. It's in Luke 16. No other, if you're an unbeliever, that's not going to happen. But you you will die alone. But when we die as Christians, we will be escorted by, an angel will take us and bring us to Abraham's bosom. Isn't that encouraging? That we will not be alone in the most difficult time of our life, that we are gonna pass through. We're not gonna stay. It's, it's a shadow. I'm reminded of a story of a pastor named Donald Gray Barnhouse. Maybe some of you have heard him. He was a pastor in the early 20th century in Philadelphia for many, many years. After his wife dies and they, they leave the funeral, And he's with his kids and they're walking down the street. And as they're walking down the street, this large truck goes by them and the truck casts a shadow over uh, Donald and his kids. And he asked them this question as we're leaving and fresh in their mind of his wife and their mother dying. He said, which would you rather be hit by, the shadow or the truck? Well, his kids were pretty sharp, okay? It didn't take long to figure out, well, dad, the shadow, of course, What's what's the illustration? What's the point? That when Jesus died on the cross for you and I, he took the impact of death on his life. We We will die at some point, unless Jesus comes back first, but we will not take the impact of death. Jesus already did that for us. 
Amen? And we will only experience the shadow of death. And we will not stay in death. We will walk through. It's, it's a process. It's a transition of life. We don't have to be afraid of it. Like Woody Allen. Ever heard of him, the, the playwright? He is the poster boy for nihilism. Nihilism basically says it's this philosophy. There's no meaning or purpose here in life. There's no absolutes. There's no, there's no, no values, no principles, no truth. And he lives his life in light of that. He is scared to death of death. He talks about it all the time. In fact, he uses humor to kind of push it out of his life. He's the one that said, see if I remember here, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. It's interesting. I'm not trying to uh, learn or attain immortality through my work. I'm trying to um, attain immortality through not dying. That's what he said. We don't have to approach death like that. We have hope. We have the assurance of God's word. We have the assurance of Christ that until Jesus, no one raised from the dead and stayed alive, but Jesus did and he's still alive today. And that's why we don't have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death alone. We have to fear no evil. So a fearful world is gonna continue to be fearful because they have no way to address their fears. They're not gonna look to God. They're not gonna look to Jesus. They're not gonna look to the scriptures. But for believers, our fear can turn to this. It can turn to joy. A fearful world rejoices. Let's talk about joy for a little bit. I like someone's definition of it. They says joy is not getting what we want, but joy is appreciating what we have. It's rejoicing in not of the things of the world, but in God. Fear is based on the things that have happened to us in the past, but it's also our apprehensions of things that are going to happen to us in the future. Fear is basically based in what we think might happen. And many times it doesn't even happen. But faith rests and rejoices in the faithfulness of God. Paul says in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord, and I say it again, rejoice. I want to give you two strong examples from Scripture, one about Jesus in Hebrews and one from the book of Habakkuk or Habakkuk. The first one is in um, Hebrews chapter 12. Listen to these words, and you've probably read them before. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter, or the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, or for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Stop right there. Jesus looked at the cross, not because it was going to be joyful and wonderful and, and fun to die on a cross, but he looked at the cross with joy. Why? Because of what it would accomplish to give glory to his Father and what it would accomplish for the world, salvation, redemption. That's why Jesus looked at the cross with joy. Not from a worldly standpoint, but from a spiritual and an eternal standpoint, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. The cross was meant to scorn and humiliate and torture people. But Jesus, by dying on the cross with great love and forgiveness, he scorned the shame of the cross. He turned it around and used an instrument that was totally used to humiliate and torture somebody and execute somebody as an instrument of love and grace and forgiveness. That's the good news, right? That's why he looked at it with joy. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. If Jesus, who faced the most horrific and excruciating death, and he did, could face it with joy, then no matter what trial, or difficulty, or fear you're facing, 
you too can rejoice. That's why it's so vital that every day we keep our eyes and our minds and our hearts fixed on Jesus. Not on your problems, not on your trials, not on your conflicts, all the bad stuff in the world, but to keep your eyes and your mind and your heart fixed, fixed permanently on Jesus. That's one aspect of joy. Here's another. Go back a few hundred years to the book of Habakkuk. Though the fig tree may not blossom, these are the most famous verses in this book, nor fruit beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, And the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. That doesn't really sound like a good situation, does it? In ancient times, in the economy of Israel, this was everything for them. Their their grapes, their olives, their figs, uh, sheep, cattle, there was no crops growing. There was no food. There were no animals to take care of them. How do you handle something like that? very difficult. I, what, what's amazing is what, what Habakkuk goes on to write in verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. So where is our rejo- why do we rejoice? We rejoice in God. How do we rejoice? We rejoice because God is our salvation. He may allow us to go through some difficult times, but eventually he's going to deliver us from all of that and take him to be with him forever. What if God decided to show another plan for your life? Something that wasn't easy, even impossible. That's what happens in the Christmas story today with Mary. So we're not just looking at a a fearful world, we're looking at a fearful girl, a teenager in this town called Nazareth. What if the plan that God has for you today is not the one that you have for yourself? (laughs) Would you be okay with that? Should we be okay with that? After all, isn't God's plans for me better than the one that I've created for my own? Isn't his ways higher and his thoughts higher and greater than mine? If God created you, doesn't he know what he created you for? That you are his workmanship, right? His masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works? Do I tell what God what my plans are or does he tell me his plans for me? Proverbs says, there is a way that seems right to a man. There is a way that seems right on the surface, but its end leads to death. I can give you a few illustrations of this. My wife, Anna, prayed that the Lord would take her anywhere but Kansas, the great state of Kansas. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. Guess where he took her, where he took both of us? To Kansas. For the first nine and a half years, We'd better be careful telling God what we will or won't do. My youngest brother, um, who's a couple years younger than me, he's on staff at a church down in Mesa, Arizona. He was a really good cross-country runner in high school, and he would make plans to go and run at a D1 school. But God got a hold of his heart and changed all that, just shook him up, said, no, I'm going to take you to a small Bible college in Nebraska. He's still in ministry after all these years touching a lot of lives. There was a man in our first ministry, he was in his mid to late 50s, and he worked uh, for Perina 
in, in the corporate level. And uh, he got to his office one day. I don't know if he was planning on it, but he gets there and sees all the plaques and uh, awards on his wall. And, and he tells himself, I've just had enough of, of all the rigmarole and the rat race of, of life. And God got a hold of him and said, I, I just want you to go back to your church and be involved as a, as a layperson, as a volunteer, and pour into the leadership. And he, he had so much wisdom. And, and he left all that. And his secretary said, what are you doing? I'm, I'm going to go serve God. I'm going to serve Christ. And I can tell you many stories like that. And there are even stories like that right now, right here, going on in some of your lives that I've seen and I continue to see. And it's an incredible thing. Isn't it, Pastor Kyle? See how God can change and shift the whole trajectory of our life for his glory and for your good and for the good of many other peoples because it doesn't end with you. So we're gonna, today we're going to look at this young girl from Nazareth and the plan that, that God had for her, her life and what he wanted her to do. Can I say that this God's desire to show us another plan for our lives is not based on us? Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, Psalm 115, but to your name give glory because of your mercy, because of your truth. Go into Luke 128 or going back there. And having come in, the angel said to her, rejoice, highly favored one. God's willingness to show us another plan for your life is based on three attributes of God. This morning, as we look at Mary's life, number one, the grace of God, the grace of God. One of my Bible college professors says, grace is this, it's not giving me what I deserve, or I'm sorry, it's giving me something that I don't deserve. It's giving me something that I don't deserve, I don't work for, I don't merit. I I shouldn't have it, but God gives it anyway. So grace grace isn't necessarily about the one that gets the gift. While that's awesome to think about, it goes back and reflects the one who gives, the one who gives to us. We can either be a recipient, and if you're a Christian here today, you've received that gift. Some of you have yet maybe to receive the grace that God has given you. The reason that Mary could rejoice, the reason why she was told to rejoice is because she was favored. God had favor and grace and blessing for her life. His goodness and his favor was for her to conceive and to carry and deliver his son to the world. It says the same thing down in verse 30, telling Mary not to be afraid because God favors her not to be afraid. I know many times we say we feel inadequate, weak, ill-equipped, and unqualified to do what God has asked us to do, but that's the point that God's trying to get us to humbly admit we are. In our weaknesses, in our fear, God pours out his grace to, to us and calls us, equips us, and uses us for his glory. Most of us are not going to be the most fashionable, trendy, or talented people. Paul tells the Corinthians, it's not many wise that are called or not many mighty. He, he uses the, the foolish of the world, of the church to shame the wise. He uses the, those that are weak to shame the strong. That's what God was doing here by calling this young girl to be his servant. Mary didn't have any experience in this area. She didn't have an impressive resume that caught God's attention. She was just a teenager from an ill repute town of Nazareth. Remember Nathaniel's question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of my life and what I've done in my past? Absolutely, why? Because God has grace on your life. Romans 5.20 says, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. So it's not about what you've done or not done, what you failed in or what you've succeeded in. It's about how God looks at your life and that he's willing to use you regardless. Just like he was willing to use Mary He can bring good out of anywhere from anyone. All things, 
work together for good. Of them that love God and been called according to his purpose. John Newton, the man that wrote the classic song, Amazing Grace, said these words, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. John Newton recognized the grace, the favor, the blessing on his life, which is the same for Mary and the same for you. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 that his grace is sufficient for us. In whatever plan he has, it's all about his calling on us. Secondly, we see with, in this passage the presence of God. So we have the grace of God, but we also have the presence. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. I think those are some of the most profound, encouraging words that we can read this morning. The Lord is with you. The Jews believed, and back in the Old Testament, really believed that God, the creator and redeemer of the world, came in to be in their presence. They believed that God came to be in their presence, and he did that many ways throughout Scripture. But one of the ways he did that, above the Ark of the Covenant, which was a, a, a holy box, basically, covered in gold, put in the Holy of Holies, and above there were these two cherub angels. And then right below the angels, there was this space, It's in Psalm 80, verse 1. Between the angels, they believed God's presence dwelt. They knew that God was with them. Symbolically, yes, but they believe literally as well that God is with them. I believe this is what gave Mary the courage and the strength to be reminded, God's with you too, Mary. He's with you too, believer, here this morning. Of the 8,000 plus promises in the Bible, This one is probably the one that Christians continue to fall back on time and time again, knowing that they're not alone, that they're they're not trying to live this life in the plan that God has for them by themselves. God will never leave us or forsake us. I love what God tells the nation of Israel. You know, at times they felt like God forsaken them, that he had left them. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 49, 14 through 16. But Zion said, that's not Zion brought us, by the way. Zion is another name for Jerusalem, okay? But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. That's what Israel believed. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion for the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. He's inscribed your life on the palms of his hand. God uses an illustration of something that for the most part would be unheard of. In, in his time, God, in the part would be unheard of. In, in New Old Testament time and even today, of a mother forgetting and not having compassion for their child. That's a natural instinct that God gives to mothers to have that. But God says, will they forget? They might forget, but here's what God is saying. I will never do that. I will never forget. I will never not have compassion. We can believe and know that it's true. No matter how big or small a task God has for us, his presence is promised and guaranteed. Um, A long time ago, several hundred years ago, there was this man over in France. His name was Brother Lawrence. Anna has a brother's name, Lawrence. It's not him, okay? And anyway, so he was was fought in a war and he got very... um, severely wounded. And so he ends up not being able to fight anymore. And he checks himself in and he goes to this monastery and he lives there for the next 40 years of his life. And what he did in those 40 years was basically he did dishes. Wonderful, glamorous life, right? He did dishes. And later on, he would become a a person that repaired sandals. 
And people became to, to listen to his wisdom and his insights about God. And, and one, one of the things he's known for is his book called Practicing the Presence of God. That God, anything he did, no matter what he did throughout his life, he was just so humble. And before you know it, people were coming to him and asking for wisdom and advice on how to understand that anywhere and everywhere I go, God is with me. And so he writes this book, or they compile this book, Practicing the Presence of God, because I think a lot of times we think we have to go through this life on our own. We're strong, we're self-sufficient, we're proud, and God is not with us, but he is. It's a promise of scripture. And for people like that in history, I love reading about them because they understood God in that relationship. So the third thing that Mary realized in God's plan for her was the greatness of God. Verses 32 and 33, he will be great and he will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Do you see what's going on here? Mary kind of begins to shift out of being the character of the story and in comes her son, Jesus, the one that she would deliver to. At this point, the spotlight is taking off of her and it's totally on Jesus where it needs to be. She would deliver Jesus, but it's all about Jesus. The reason that Mary was called and chosen and trusted and given the task to give birth to Jesus is because it wasn't about her being the kind of person or a great person. It was about a great God in his grace, in his compassion. The reason that God can change our plans and point us to God every time is because he's able to do that. He's able to do that. Mary gets lost in the greatness of Jesus and, and she takes this humble position of a servant. Jesus' greatness will be seen if we break this verse down in number one, his identity. He is the son of God mean, means that he's equal with God. He is deity. He is God himself. He's the son of God. We also see this greatness in his prophecy back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10. God tells David, there's gonna be another king, another body on your throne. After you're done, I'm gonna bring him. He's gonna come out of your family, out of your line. He's from the line of the tribe of Jude and his name's going to be Jesus. He's gonna fulfill a prophecy, David, of what you can never offer to the world, my son will. Not only in his identity and his prophecy, but also his sovereignty. The word sovereign simply means total, complete rule. Jesus is gonna be a ruler over his nation, over the nation of Jacob, over Israel. But even beyond that, he's going to rule the whole world. He's gonna come and set up his kingdom here, a literal kingdom, where I believe he will reign here a thousand years from the capital city of Jerusalem. And he will set up a kingdom that will be sovereign. And then that'll move in from a thousand years into eternity. We're gonna step right into eternity. And we're gonna enjoy him forever. We're gonna enjoy him forever. And fourthly, Jesus is great because he's eternal. Jesus showed up in, in the manger in about 4 BC, but he had always already existed. In fact, he's the only one in history that existed before he was born. He's the only one in history that has existed after he died. It's unrepeatable events. He, we could talk all day about his greatness, but this is what Mary was experiencing with him. The reason Mary could do this is because of the greatness of God. Mary of Nazareth's life, along with Joseph, would never be the same. That's how it is when we have a real encounter with God. It doesn't tell us in the text or anywhere else in scripture the challenges and the hardships that Mary would have with her family and community, but you know they had some. And she, has, she gets pregnant, what looks to be 
out of wedlock, out of her commitment with Joseph. And no one really knows what's going on. Mary and Joseph, and that was it, pretty much. When God shows you another plan for your life, that doesn't guarantee it's going to be smooth and easy. In fact, I can tell you this, it's probably gonna be hard. But that's how you'll know that it is a plan of God. Because we try to make up, come up with the smooth plans, the easy plans, the ones that are comfortable. There was this author many years ago, his name's Mark Galley. He said this, God loves you and has a difficult plan for your life. I use that, I use that statement all the time in my, reminding me, Kent, God does love you, but he has you on a difficult journey. The road is narrow, right? And it's difficult, but it's good. It's worth it. She totally surrendered to God's plan for her life. What does that look like? Then Mary said, behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In other words, when we just finished a series, Pastor Kyle finished a series called I'm in. Mary, that's what she was saying to the angel. I'm in, do with me what you want. I'm your slave. She surrendered to God's calling on her life. Anna and I met at and attended a small Bible college in Nebraska, the same one that my brother ended up going to a couple years later. After we graduated from college, we sent resumes out all over the country, hoping to find a position in a church to serve somewhere. But that didn't happen on our timetable. It rarely ever does. So we continued to work and to wait, to work and to wait for two years. And I know a lot of people wait longer than that and go through more struggles, but it was an anxious time for us. I'll never forget the day when we got a call from a church. Ann and I were working at Golden Corral. We call them waiters and waitresses at that time, okay? And we were working for 209 an hour plus tips. We were bringing in the bucks, right? And we just finished our evening, our supper shift, and we were getting everything cleaned up for the next morning. And I get a call to Golden Corral. This is before cell phones. It was my mom saying, this church down in Kansas, <laughs> down in Kansas, called us and asked if we would come. And I remember what I was doing, and I think it's significant. I remember what I was doing, and it's this. I was taking a, a soup spoon, you know, the big oval soup spoons, and I was on my hands and knees, scraping up food that had been stepped on and ground in all day long. And other people were doing the same thing. But I remember the call. My mom almost accepted the position for us. She was so excited for us, but she thought we better answer that and uh, ourselves. I think God was testing us, preparing us to see if we would wait and trust in his plan for our lives and not our own. Because God has a better plan for you than you do for yourself. He humbled us and he had us right where he wanted us, where on our knees, in humility and waiting and trusting in him. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I know you've read these verses. Maybe you have them memorized. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. He will make your path straight. What does it mean to not lean on your own understanding? It means to trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's what it means. Not to trust in your own knowledge, in your own instinct, in your, your own creativity, your own knowledge or experience or whatever it is, your accomplishments. It means to trust in the Lord. Put all of your weight on him because he cares for you. 
put all your weight on him and trust him in the journey of whatever he wants to do. And we're going to have a lot of opportunities as we transition and, and grow that we're going to need a, an army of volunteers of people to help accomplish the mission here at Renovation Church. Are we all in to that? So how are we able to rejoice, to have joy in a time of great fearfulness? Because God has grace for you in the plan. He has favor for you, blessing for you. It may not become financially, may not become materially, but he has favor for your life. Number two is because God's presence is with you right now. As a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit residing in your heart. That's an incredible thought. That's an incredible thought. And number three, because God is a great God and there's nothing impossible with him. Nothing impossible with him. So in scripture, um, and we're gonna have our prayer team get up. And if I could ask you guys to stand in scripture, there are three different postures of prayer in the Bible. The first one is standing, which all of you are standing. The second one is on our knees. And the third one is laying flat down on your face. Those are the three different postures in scripture. And so this morning when we're worshiping and when we're singing this song and you're standing, maybe, maybe it's for time for you to say, you know, I need to bow to the Lord this morning. I need, I need to give him my loyalty and my allegiance and bow before him. Or maybe if there's room, maybe I just need to go before him even lower than that and surrender my life and my plans to God's plans because that's what he asked me to do. Whatever that is, whatever that posture, whatever that position is this morning, let's all of us be praying about how God wants to and can use us and the plan that he has for you. Not to harm you, but to give you what? A future and a hope. A future and a hope. Let's do that as we sing this morning. Thank you for listening to the Renovation Church Podcast. If you'd like to support Renovation and our ministries, then head over to renovatethecity.com slash give. It's because of your faithful and consistent generosity that we're able to continue ministries like this all across the world. If you'd like to learn more about Renovation and our ministries, then head over to renovatethecity.com. If you enjoyed today's message, then we'd encourage you to share it with family and friends. Thank you again for joining us and God bless.